Welcome home. This is Audio EXP for the 29th of August 2020. And the title of this episode is You're Running from an Assassin. Here's the scenario to imagine. Pretend you have no weapons, no means to defend yourself, and without assistance, you have no way to hide. And that's bad news, because there's an assassin coming for you. In a city full of strangers, who do you ask for help? At the start of the year, Geek Native had a copy of The Assassin's Creed The Essential Guide to give away. Regular listeners will know what this means. The Geek Native site ran a poll as the entry mechanism to the giveaway. I maintain that's much better than forcing people to join mailing lists or spam their friends on social media. The poll asked, are assassins glamorous or repellent? Games like Assassin's Creed and movies like, say, John Wick tend to present assassins as cool characters with a coat of honour, impressive skills and loyal friends. But are they really like that? Aren't they just paid killers? Murderers? These are people who fancy topping up their bank balance is more important than somebody else's life. Given that the competition prize was an Assassin's game, it's perhaps no surprise to know that most readers thought assassins are glamorous. On a ratio of almost 3 to 1, the idea of assassins being repellent was outvoted. But if you go back to the scenario in which you are the target, that's not good news, is it? A stranger may well not instinctively be appalled by the idea of an assassin operating in the city. Oh, I know, it's a fanciful and stretched concept, but stick with me for just a bit longer. You see... The Paul Geek Native ran also asked people whether or not they identified as a man, or as a woman, or as neither man nor woman. Men were more pro-assassin than women. Only 21% of men thought assassins were repellent, but 34.7% of women did. Just over 120 people entered that competition, and 8 of them identified as neither man nor woman, and 50% of people in this segment thought that assassins are repellent. So, there you go. If you are looking for an ally in a city full of strangers, when there's an assassin coming for you, look for someone who does not identify as either male or female. That is the best chance to find someone who might oppose the killer by helping you. What have you been up to since we spoke last? I attended Virtually Expo and I enjoyed it. It made much better use of the website than Gen Con Online did, but it felt much smaller. GenCon Online had a busy Discord and Twitch channels often in the high hundreds, even thousands of viewers. UK Games Expo's online event only got into the low hundreds. However, I spent money at the Virtually Expo and didn't even see where I could at GenCon Online. What Virtually Expo had was a schedule builder and a profile on which you could collect virtual badges. Some badges were unlocked by attending events others by checking out virtual stalls of sponsors on the website. As an industry, we're on a steep learning curve for online events, but the progress is impressive. At Virtually Expo, I watched the live draw of the UK Games Expo award winners. And here are the results for the role-playing category. For Best Role-Playing Game Expansion, both the People's Award and the Judges' Award went to Berlin, the Wicked City from Chaosium. For Best Role-Playing Game Adventure, the People's Award went to Chariot of Gods for the Alien RPG from Free League Publishing, and the Judges' Award went to 
the uh, Warhammer 4E edition of Rough Nights and Hard Days by Cubicle 7. Lastly, for best role-playing game, the People's Award went to the Alien role-playing game from Free League Publishing, and the Judges' Award went to Paladin, Warriors of Charlemagne by Chaosium. So, not too different from the Ennies, with Chaosium and Free League being dominant. I took a look at a few games this week too, one of which is a bit of a Kickstarter disaster story, sorry to say, called The Lost Citadel. It's from Green Ronin Publishing, and I trust them to make it right, but it's been a long slog, and the hardback, which I think I will like more than the PDF given the font size, is stuck in the lockdown logistics. The Lost Citadel is a dark D&D. Take a 5e setting and sweep it with an undead apocalypse. Magic shatters, and this is enough to drive the elves mad. The living cannot fight off the tide of undead horrors that claw their way out of the earth, and in the end, all that survives of the fantasy races retreat to a single still-standing dwarf fortress. Within a generation, humans have taken over and made the dwarf slaves. You can see at times... Greenwillen wrestling to treat subjects like slavery with the respect and caution that they are due, but also trying to ramp up the bleakness and the pitiful state of the world. I love the concept. The Lost Citadel doesn't take away magic from D&D. It makes it scary and less straightforward. It doesn't actively fight against D&D's tendency towards high fantasy, but instead, by ramping up the dangers of stepping outside the fortress it turns the game into much lower fantasy. And of course, with a setting like this, they limit your choices of races and classes to only what survived that initial onslaught and what fits a campaign world. The Lost Citadel isn't a game for everyone, but it's one that I'm glad I have in my collection. Another game that caught my eye is Fragnarok. Now, you'll probably kick the bucket in Fragnarok too, but if you fight hard and are lucky, you will die a glorious Viking death. In Fragnarok, aliens have crash-landed and the Vikings have gotten hold of their technology. The aliens, though, have been messing with the local wildlife, including magic entities, and they've released all sorts of mutants. The world is an incredibly dangerous place. Fragnarok is a $5 game from HEO, but if you sign up to the publisher's mailing list, then it's free. You can find instructions on Geek Native and the link to the transcript of the podcast, complete with the links to Fragnarok, is in the show notes. Sticking with the apocalypse theme, let's talk about Twilight 2000. The original Twilight 2000 was set in the future year 2000 and after the apocalypse. Thankfully, we've made it to 2020 with that possibility not coming true. Well, barely. Freely Publishing and Partners are now working on a fourth edition. Uh, The Kickstarter has been successful and there are a few days left to join in. I spoke to Chris Lights, a head writer, about the game. Now, many interviews from gaming sites about Twilight 2000 have focused on the mechanics and how Free League might treat those. Instead, I wanted to talk to Chris about the lure of the apocalypse. What's the attraction of the game, I asked. Why is the Kickstarter doing so well? Chris concedes that nostalgia for the previous editions is a factor. When it comes to the apocalypse that never was, though, Chris points out that the genre is evergreen. It's a thing that we, as a species, obsess about. And I think he's right. At the end of the interview, we talk about whether to include politics in a game or as a company. Chris highlights that in Twilight 2000, he gets to talk about the politics that were 
since the game is now set in an alternative history past, but that we tend to be our own worst enemies. And I think he's right about that too. Now, this next story denies any association with politics and apocalyptic consequences, but Eric M. Lang has stepped down from his position at CMON. Why? He wants to concentrate on freelance game design and activism. Straight up, I'm sure that his first client as a freelancer will be Simon themselves. And I think games like Blood Rage and the Cyberpunk 2077 board game will be barely affected. We will still see them. In a tweet, Lang says that Simon PR is too modest and highlights how supportive they have been of his activism. It's an inspiring story. Here is a person of colour in a prominent position in a well-known gaming company and he feels he can't stay. He wants to get back to his roots. He wants to help causes important to him. So his departure will not be apocalyptic for Simon. He's still around and it wasn't internal politics that forced him out. His own principles encouraged him to make the change so he can address real life politics. The gaming industry is making changes. Speaking of which, Wizards of the Coast's next D&D book is Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And while I've not seen a statement confirming this, I'm sure this is the book described in the company's diversity statement. That is to say, there's a lot packed into this cauldron, everything from psionics to group patrons, but the headline news is that Tasha offers up alternative ways to handle racial modifiers. In other words, tribal cultures aren't always stupid. The thing to stress is that these rules, whatever they turn out to be, are optional. No one is going to break into your apartment and rip up your own campaign world. No one is saying that if you are a racist if you play an old version of D&D. The book is due out in November, and I have a second post about it on the blog, wherein I scoop up every image officially released from Wizards of the Coast, and I put it and its file name in a single place. Now, with Tasha's Cauldron of Everything announced, it means Wizards of the Coast have two big books due, and the publisher was almost invisible at both GenCon Online and Virtually Expo. The other book is Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. They're doing their own thing, of course. They've announced their own online weekend event called D&D Celebration 2020. In fact, Wizards are going for the world's largest virtual tabletop session. There are some 600 virtual tabletop events planned. I went through the first 200 and paid attention to what the virtual tabletop solution Wizards is going to use. Okay, I admit. I looked in case there were clues that they were about to launch their own or work with fandom, tabletop and D&D and beyond, but I saw no such clue. I did see that Wizards of the Coast are taking a multi-platform approach, but that it was dominated by Roll20. 66% of the events on Friday use Roll20. 18% use Discord, 95 use Zoom, only 4% use Fantasy Grounds, and 1.5% just use Google Meet. There are other virtual tabletops out there, like Astral, D20 Pro, Tailspire and Foundry. There are even some brand new players that look impressive too. One of those is Battlemap, which has a focus on an individual scene and a 3D approach, and a free tier. Battlemap is now public at battlemap2ps.io, and there's a video demo on Geek Native and in the transcript. Another is Taresk. Now, Taresk is in closed beta at the minute, so you need to be a patron backer to get hands-on with it. But yep, there's a video demo on Geek Native. 
this new virtual tabletop is working hard to be mobile first and touch friendly. In other words, you should be able to run an encounter without a mouse or a keyboard. And that's a good idea. It's not quite a virtual tabletop, but World Anvil is a site for world building. You might be an author or designing a comic book or yeah, running an online game. Now, this week, World Anvil has introduced the diplomacy webs to their system. Define your factions, groups, cults, churches, empires, that sort of thing, and then describe the relationship between them. The diplomacy web visualizes that for you. And yeah, it looks like a web. It's a neat feature. Now, there are four more stories to headline for you this week, and they're all off the tabletop. First up, Burn the Witch. It looks good, and it's an anime from the creator of Bleach. In Burn the Witch, dragons are responsible for most of the deaths in London. It's just that people can't see the dragons. If you're a resident of Reverse London, then you can. The anime follows two young witches, part of a group with the responsibility to conserve and manage dragons. Crunchyroll won the bidding war, and the anime will come out in October. A second anime story, and what is this, our fourth apocalypse story of the podcast, is Akira. The 4K remastered version of Akira is coming to 300 IMAX screens in the UK and Ireland. This cinematic version of the classic has never left Japan before. Now there's a sign-up website to use if you want to try and get a ticket. The next story deals with a 30-year-old mystery, which makes it 10 years younger than the 40-year-old Akira. Now, it's one of my favourite cheese metal songs, complete with crazy rhymes, a song called Holy Diver by a band named Dio. I mean, any track that begins with wind and howling wolves has to accept little cheese. The album Holy Diver is named after this track, and the cover of this 30-year-old masterpiece shows a priest in chains and in the water apparently far out in sea. Meanwhile, some towering colossus rises up from behind the mountains in the background. Just what is going on? Well, we will soon find out, as Z2 has the official permission to explore the scene in a 120-page graphic novel from Steve Niles. Steve is a horror writer behind comics like October Faction and 30 Days of Night. My last headline is a tip-off for you. If you use or you have no objections to the Epic Games Launcher, then you can grab yourself a bundle of Shadowrun computer games for free. You have about a week. And on that note, let's call it a wrap. Keep safe and stay out of melee range. And I'll see you next week.